Hey everybody, welcome back to the Med Tech Talk podcast. This is your host, Tom Salemi. Very happy to have you here today. We're going to talk robotics. I love robotics. I love talking about robotics. We had uh, Eric Timko here a couple of weeks ago uh, talking about Blue Belt and, and what happened with that in orthopedics. Obviously, we've seen some robotics movement in oncology, one of the first areas where it really entered with uh, Intuitive. Today, we're going to talk with uh, a company, the founder of a company, or one of the founders of a company called Precise. And it's spelled P-R-E-C-E-Y-E-S. And I'm going to mangle it later on in the podcast. But precise, as the E-Y-E-S part uh, sort of emphasizes, is operating, literally, in ophthalmology. And uh, it's uh, it's uh, been about 10 years in the making, the precise surgical system. But what it does is it enables surgeons to be even more precise with their uh, with their procedures. And they're able to do perhaps some procedures that they weren't able to do before, able potentially to do them quickly, or enables more surgeons to do what uh, to do this surgery, which might have been done only by the, uh, the most uh, highly skilled surgeons before. So it could have a really significant impact on medtech and on ophthalmology uh, if Precise is able to get this to the market and, uh, and to move it into the U.S. It's, uh, it's based in the Netherlands. It's functioning mostly in Europe right now. But it did report the first uh, robotic-assisted eye surgery was done uh, in September last month. So they're beginning to move toward a CE mark, and uh, they obviously have the FDA on their uh, radar, albeit farther, farther down the horizon. So uh, it's a company to watch for sure. And I hope you enjoy this conversation that I had with uh, Dr. Mark DeSmet. He's the chief medical officer of Precise and uh, has been uh, one, of the, uh, one of the founders of the technology, having been involved with the company even before it was a company. So I hope, again, uh, you enjoy this conversation with Mark DeSmet. He is the Chief Medical Officer of Precise. Well, Mark DeSmet, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So we've been following the, the, the uh, advance of robotics into, uh, into medicine for, for quite some time. But in ophthalmology, it, 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 there hasn't been much advancing into this sector yet. Until this month, actually, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, you had reported, uh, and you are the chief medical officer of Precise Surgical System, uh, Precise had put out the word that the first robotic-assisted operation inside the eye had been performed using uh, using your system. This was done at Oxford's John Radcliffe Hospital. Uh, can you uh, give us uh, an idea of what that procedure was? And, uh, and within that, perhaps tell us a bit about what uh, Precise's surgical system does. Okay, well, to uh, be perfectly uh, exact, this is the first time it was used in humans in life surgery. Uh, about two years ago, I've used it in, in pigs for a different indication and so when we first did it in pigs, we uh, uh, tried to test our system to do vitrectomies as well as to be able to cannulate veins. And the results of those uh, initial experiments are coming out now in the British Journal of Ophthalmology as a publication probably uh, within about a month or so. In uh, Oxford, a uh, machine that was specifically built to uh, exacting standards so that it can be used on patients was used. And so the first human patient ever to be operated with a, a, a robot was, in fact, indeed operated in Oxford. And the procedure essentially considered, consisted in trying to generate the first flap for a uh, uh, macular PL for somebody that had an epiretinal membrane. 
And so in Oxford, the machine was specifically built uh, for the purpose of being able to operate patients. It was built so that it could be used in a clinical study setting, uh, and the aim is to be able to demonstrate the safety of our machine. Um, a number of patients will be operated to try and initiate the peel, and so in some patients, the hope is that we'll be able to inject some uh, TPA uh, through the retina into the subretinal space to dissipate a subretinal hemorrhage so that we can sh both show that it is uh, safe to use on the surface as well as highly precise, not causing any trauma if you're trying to get through the retina to do something in the subretinal space. So we, we've seen robotic technology, again, find its way into other specialties, uh, cancer where it's helping with, with precision, uh, orthopedics, uh, where it's helping like with le less with precision, but more, I guess, with precision in the cuts of, of, of joints. What does the precise surgical system offer uh, for ophthalmology? Well, the precise surgical system was devised from the ground up uh, for the purpose of carrying out, uh, at least in initially, vitreoretinal surgery. So there are uh, systems around, as you say, that are highly precise for other aims. Um, there even have been attempts to use the Da Vinci system to do corneal suturing, for example, and uh, you can do it by modifying the system. This was built from the ground up so that we could do vitretinal surgery. So it is, first of all, very compact. It can fit on existing OR tables. So a surgeon can continue doing whatever he would normally do and just uh, uh, bring in the uh, robot into position so he can use the highly precise um, uh, micromanipulator for whichever task he wants to use it for. So we're trying to develop it so that uh, it can assist the surgeon in his day-to-day -day surgery. It provides a precision of up to about 5 to 10 microns in X, Y, and Z, which uh, obviously goes beyond what a human is able to do. So, you know, uh, because we have a natural tremor, our precision is the, in the order of about 60 to 100 microns. Not only does it provide you with very high precision, it also allows you, well, we can filter out tremor. That's, of course, something you can do. So you can increase the precision of an existing surgeon. But you can also let go of the instrument, which means that you have what's called positional stability, positional memory, and your uh, robotic arm can become an assistant, uh, a third arm, for example, while you're carrying out uh, another step, let's say, in a surgical procedure. Wow, that's, that's quite a difference in, in precision. I didn't realize it was that dramatic. And if anyone's listening on a computer, uh, the, there's a, a great video uh, of the technology. It's on your website, uh, uh, precise.nl, uh, so it's P-R-E-C-E-Y-E-S dot N-L, and it's got a great overview of the, of the technology. And, and, I, and I, I've watched the video, and there's actually a nice news report about this particular uh, procedure as well, and, uh, and I was struck by how compact the, the, the device is and, and how easy it seemed to be to, to, to set up a patient in it. It was just a matter of sort of flipping the, the instrument over the patient's eye and the physician uh, accessed it or, or controlled it with a joystick that was, uh, I think, on their right hand and, and kind of up at a, at a 2 o'clock angle. So it was, uh, it was really just a, a very compact system. How, how long did it take to, to get that technology down to that size? Well, it's been from the point where it was uh, designed, uh, more or less designed at about that size. So uh, we've been working on it for about uh, 11, 10 to 11 years now. 
So uh, it's not so much getting it to the size, it's being able to not only design the overall, um, overall design, it's to make sure that all of the small motors and actuators that are inside the robot itself work exactly to very exacting standards and uh, don't cause, for example, a shuddering if you get to the outer limit of its reach that it uh, maintains its precision in, in all kinds of directions. So it's the incremental improvements have been essentially in the performance. The design itself was set very early, and it was set essentially by saying that we wanted to be able to use it with an existing microscope, place it on most existing OR tables. Um, because we're looking at vitreoretinal surgery, the insertion point inside the eye had to be a point of rotation, so once we defined a lot of the early parameters, uh, we weren't trying to create a system as the Da Vinci would be a fully dedicated robot and would have to essentially have its own room. We wanted to be able to be interactive. Once we said these things, the rest of the time was trying to, de to uh, improve the performance to the point where we would feel comfortable in letting a surgeon use it, somebody who hadn't really been associated directly with the development of the robot, which is what we did when we went to Oxford. So, take us back a bit to those ten or eleven years. What what is the origin of of the uh, of the company of the technology initially, and, and and when did Precise come into uh, come into being? So it originally started in a meeting between uh, engineers and uh, a few physicians. I was the only ophthalmologist present at the time, trying to see how, um, in particularly the Netherlands, would be able to position itself within the medical robotics field. Um, at the time, there were just a few Da Vinci machines available, and uh, for those who know something about the Netherlands, around Eindhoven, the uh, headquarters of Philips, there are several other uh, mechatronic companies, companies that produce devices that use electronics at the same time as mechanics. And some of the machines that are, that are useful in producing, for example, microchips for uh, Intel, the machines that produce these are being developed uh, in the southern part of the Netherlands. So there's a lot of knowledge in that area. They wanted to get into this field, and after some discussions, we decided that we would concentrate on trying to create a micro-robotic system that at first could work onto the eye and maybe later could be used in fields such as orthopedics, neurosurgery, or maybe ENT. Within the eye, it seemed that uh, we needed something that would have high precision for uh, retina, which is a very variable field, but where precision is extremely important. Otherwise, we can damage very delicate uh, tissues, more so than, for example, cataract surgery, where a lot of surgeons are already capable of doing a fantastic job without having any additional help. So we created first, we got a grant, uh, we uh, created the design for the robotic part itself as well as for its controller, the controlling arm. That led to the development of a prototype. We then used it for different types of uh, biopharma projects where we, uh, the technology was required for high precision, for example, in the case of vein cannulations. We moved along. Uh, we won a prize in 2014 from a, a, uh, a called Uretina. It's one of the largest uh, meetings uh, on the subject of retinal diseases in the world. So we won the innovation prize. At the same time, was uh, uh, Professor McLaren from uh, Oxford present? He won the second prize, and when he saw our technology, he saw its potential for his need, which is uh, in gene therapy. 
He wants to deliver genes into the subretinal space of diseased eyes that have very, very scarred retina. And for that reason, we started collaborating and seeing if we could maybe get a machine that he could test clinically and maybe ultimately use uh, for his specific indication. Precise itself was created as a startup company about um, a year and a half ago. And uh, when it was formed, I became the chief medical officer for this uh, company. And I keep, uh, you know, trying to push the scientific as well as the medical development uh, for the time being more in the field of vitretinal surgery, but we're certainly looking at other, other possibilities and venues. And, and Dr. McLaren, he was the uh, the surgeon who performed the procedure uh, at Oxford this month, correct? Yeah. In the end, we uh, he was the he got some funds so that the machine could be built to exacting uh, clinical standards, and we can come back to that if you'd like. And uh, he was trained so that he could perform the first surgery in humans. Yeah. Hey everyone, Tom here. I want to take this quick break to invite you to take part of a new program we have, uh, the company Healthogy, which puts on the MedTech Talk podcast and of course the medtech conference which we'll be holding in june in minneapolis uh, has a new uh, offering called companies to watch if you have a company and you want to get the word out about your technology or about your story and your potential uh, please consider uh, coming to us at healthy g our companies to watch program enables you to record uh, presentations of your tech uh, showing your technology telling your story and we'll take those stories, we'll turn them into uh, videos that then we can send out via our, uh, our channels, our uh, emails, our social media channels. We'll make them available, of course, on our website and get them out uh, as robustly as possible. And, of course, you'll get a copy of the video yourself to promote any which way you want to. So please consider uh, companies to watch. Uh, we will be appearing in cities across the U.S. doing these recordings. If you want some more information you can go to the MedTech Conference website and there's a Companies to Watch um, um, page there that you can find easily. There's an there's a, uh, a ad on the uh, front of the website or you can reach out directly to my colleague Maureen Linehan and she is uh, at maureen at healthogy.com and healthogy is spelled like the word health followed by the letters egy.com Maureen is in charge of our Companies to Watch program. She can answer any questions you have. So I hope you will reach out. Now back to this conversation with Mark DeSemet of Precise. Yeah, well, let's, talk, let's do talk about the funding. What were the, uh, how much have you raised or has Precise raised or has this project raised since Precise has only been around for a year and a half? <laughs> how, how, much, how much money does it cost to get us to where we are today? Well, to get us to where we are today, uh, oddly enough, we're in, in, in Europe and in the Netherlands, uh, we're a tiny startup. We're always looking for funds. So if there's somebody listening to this who would like to invest in these kind, in this type of technology, be my guest in contacting us. <laughs> uh, for the first part up to the machine that McLaren used, we probably had something like 10 or t- uh, 9 to 10 million euros. Uh, to get it to a clinical uh, CE marked machine, we probably need uh, to double that amount. If we want to get it to FDA approval, we're probably more looking around 40 to 60 million in mm-hmm. all honesty. So those are the kind of amounts that we need. So far, we've developed one of the two arms that were designed originally. And one of the things that you don't see on the site, um, but we also have designs for, is the idea of being able to exchange instruments that would fit on some kind of a rack so that a surgeon could do whatever he needs to do and switch from one instrument to the other and just carry on his surgery while he's looking at what he's doing. 
currently when I operate uh, and I take an instrument out of the eye, I've got to take my focus away from what I'm doing, hand the instrument over to a nurse, try to find a hole where I have to go through and get back to the site where I was uh, busy. And I may lose maybe half a minute or a minute each time. And each time I have to refocus my microscope and see where I want to go. So the idea that I could just, you know, flick or, or touch a button, see my instrument leave and come back to the same spot within 25 seconds or so, to me sounds like a dream. You know, I'd be able to do whatever I need to do faster, better, with more precision, because I'm not changing my focus away. I'm just concentrating on what I want to do. And I think that's one of the things that most surgeons that have tested our system have said. And even McLaren, as he was doing this, he said, you know, it feels so safe and uh, so stress. It takes away so much stress away. You don't have to worry that you're going too deep. Um, as I said, you can just pull back and let go for a while, think about what you really want to do, and continue doing it. Well, when we do surgery today, we always have to keep our muscles under a certain degree of strain because we don't want to move the instruments too far. And in any case, the position of a typical surgeon today in front of a microscope is in fact ergonomically not the the best uh, position. There are a lot of physicians about my age that will complain of back pain, neck pain, and studies that have been done in people that have done a lot of microscopy usually say that about 15 to 20 years later, 30 to 40 percent of people have some degree of um, uh, job-related, uh, you know, uh, side effects from from having performed surgery in non-ergonomically. Uh, uh, you know, ideal positions. And the other thing, of course, in terms of this technology, which is coming along, when we developed this robot, and it's quite unique, we did not develop a, a video system. So we don't have any uh, feedback loop that allows the robot to work on its own. Certainly, it's something that we've considered and are looking at to the future. But I think there's a it's a, a very neat and niche position in which we are, because we're, in fact, providing an instrument that gives high precision to a surgeon without attempting to displace him out of his role. Mm -hmm. Quite contrarily, we're giving him the possibility of being a lot more precise and trying to adopt the technology and use it where he thinks it's going to help him best. And I think that's also the best strategy to get a technology accepted and um, by not only young surgeons that are going to adopt something new anyway, but also a, a more mature generation of uh, ophthalmologists that might want something that is going to give them an extra uh, level of safety and comfort. Well, I think one thing that there's always been talk about and genuine, genuine, general concern about is in the future whether there'll be a, sh a shortage of, of surgeons. So it seems if you're able to make these procedures simpler and, and, and help them be finished more quickly that that would fit right into that, uh, into that critical need? Well, it's going to make them safer. To make them simpler, you have to redesign the surgery from a robotic standpoint. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you think about cannulation or you want to get through the retina, we currently do vitrectomies, and we do vitrectomies. Why? In part because we want to remove the vitreous, remove anything that could pull or cause traction. We also need to do it because if we want to manually go in with a needle with high precision and just move it to the exact same spot, I'm going to have to try to move the needle tip around to get to the right spot. It's going to pull on vitreous uh, structures. If I had something highly precise that could go directly where it needs to go, 
the vitrectomy becomes uh, superfluous. So you can eliminate certain steps by using the precision that a robot can give you. And so, for example, when I started doing cannulations, I would do vitrectomies. And after about a month or so, I realized they're not really necessary. We can do everything without doing that. We just have to aim specifically where we want to go. And so we gave up part of the procedure and still accomplished what we wanted to do. So I think as robotics comes in, we're going to probably start looking at the way we do things in a different way. Mm -hmm. But first of all, it needs to be, to some extent, adopted by a number of individuals that are willing to take the step to move over to a machine and let the machine do part of the work. The way I look at it for the future a little bit is uh, when you take a plane, for example, to come to Europe or somebody from here goes over to the States, we still have pilots in the front of the plane. But does the pilot physically, uh, you know, pilot the plane during the whole flight? Most of the time, they sort of give commands, uh, and uh, in, in, in some planes, are you just using an iPad now to give commands as to what the plane should be doing. And to me, in the future, the role of the surgeon is a little bit that of a pilot in surgery. He should be there to be able to direct overall what needs to be done, say in which plane, for example, a dissection should be done, or the vitreous should be removed, or laser should be placed. And because the robot has such high precision, the surgeon should leave it over to the machine to do the nitty-gritty of the surgery itself. The most difficult part in surgery is the planning. It's not so much the execution as to decide who, when, and how it should be done. Whether it's being done by a top surgeon or one of his assistants, as long as it's done correctly according to the parameters you've defined, you should be able to achieve success. How is this being received uh, by the, the uh, ophthalmic surgeon community? Well, it's interesting. When you the question, I think you realize that there's some thought to what I said, and uh, we had the, uh, a recently a panel of uh, experts, uh, you know, that gave us some opinion, opinion leaders. Most are excited by the idea of being able to try this, uh, the robot and, uh, and see how it performs. Um, there were some people that were quite uh, candid and said, uh, listen, I don't really want to have a machine come and do my peels. I like doing peels and I want to do them myself. And I can understand that. I like doing surgery too. And when you, when you conceptually think about it, uh, I think robotics is both interesting and also, um, makes people scared about their own jobs. And that's what I try and want to also alleviate, is that in this case we're enhancing the abilities and not taking away. But you've got to try to really know. You know, years ago I started diving, and in my dive book in the preface they were saying, you can only explain what diving is to a scuba diver. You can only talk about what scuba diving is like to another scuba diver. Mm -hmm. You can't explain it to somebody who's landlocked and has never gone underwater, wore a mask, and, and was able to breathe air while looking at fish. And I think with robotics, it's a bit the same. You can only appreciate what it is if you're in there trying it and seeing what you're able to do with it. So how does Precise get to that point? What is, what is next? You mentioned you're, you're uh, willing to take phone calls from people who, who, who want to invest, and uh, I know all, all medical startups are, are the same way. They will raise money when they can. But what is your, uh, your plan for getting regulatory approval, and, and do you have your eyes on a commercial launch at some point? Commercial launch is probably about two years away, at least uh, at the pace we're going now. Of, co of course, all of that is a question of how much money you get and what strings are being attached to it. 
So uh, we are looking for venture capital right now. We're trying to raise it. Uh, we hired a CEO very recently, somebody who worked for Philips in the past, uh, Perry van Reisingen. So he has a lot of experience uh, within uh, uh, within the medtech uh, and uh, also the medical field a little bit about uh, what it uh, what it takes to be able to uh, build a company. Um, all of it is in part dependent on uh, being able to raise money, get grants, and being able to sell some machines uh, that can uh, will anybody who buys it at this stage would have to buy it with the idea that it's going to be used essentially for experimental use and for a limited number of patients. So it's not an easy road. This is the truth of any uh, startup company, um, and uh, but we do have plans to get it out first to a C mark. That's the easiest to to reach. It's uh, a goal that is uh, within reach, within about a year, and then after that to look at partners in the U.S. that will allow us to. Uh, uh, probably get it uh, for a specific indication. Um, we're not sure which one yet. I think something like, for example, uh, helping in gene therapy, something new, something where the technology would make a difference. And once we get approval in one area, it will be easier to move it over to uh, to other fields of uh, vitreoretinal surgery and first, uh, as let's say, a first step. And then we'll look at other applications, whether it be uh, high precise cataract surgery, where it might. I, in my opinion, it might work as well, maybe better than femtosecond lasers, for example, if we want to make a very nice rexis and be able to do a very controlled uh, cataract operation. Uh, some people have approached us with regards to glaucoma surgery. Um, we could probably automate also uh, the placement of sutures. There are many possibilities uh, once we get down that road. Oh, you, you seem to be pushing all, all the right buttons, uh, uh, making surgeon, making the surgeries safe, safer and, 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 and easier for the surgeons, putting, it, putting the surgeon, surger, surgeries in a place uh, outside of the hospital in, in, a, in a, an office setting, uh, just in terms of ticking off the list of, of things that uh, investors and I think physicians and hospital groups are looking for. You seem to be uh, checking off a lot of boxes. Well, you know, I'm an ophthalmologist myself. I've been uh, in this business since the mid-1980s, so, you know, I've seen things come along, and this is an interesting technology, uh, maybe not so much in the U.S., but in Europe, for example, there are a few companies that are starting to develop uh, very simple laminar flow devices that provide sterility around the head and uh, the body. Uh, up to the chest, for example, and we don't really need much more than that if we want to be able to do safe uh, eye surgery. The reason we need a bigger room is in part because our equipment is large and because right now we need to have a nurse, a, a physical body that has to come next to the head of a patient. And if we could eliminate that in a very safe way, uh, I think things become much more compact. And both physicians and, uh, and the whole healthcare system faces a crisis as we go along where, you know, uh, uh, remunerations will go down. If we can be compact and cost-effective, uh, obviously we'll be able, from a physician standpoint, to be able to maintain our margins, at least for a while. And I think we can provide probably better care with a much simpler infrastructure once we can miniaturize. And as you've mentioned earlier, our system is very compact. So if we can now make the rest of what we use, uh, use this degree of compactness and precision to carry out surgery, we're going to be able to do, you know, much better in the coming years. But 
I didn't mention it in part of my uh, roadmap up till now because I see that as being the next stage. We first have to get out there and get people to adopt this technology and want to use it, and then we can sort of work on that next step. But there are other things coming along uh, that will make it possible in the foreseeable future. Excellent. Well, it's, it's really exciting news. Uh, again, the website is uh, precise.nl, spelled P-R-E-C-E-Y. P R E C E Y E S. Yeah, so the idea is precise with eyes instead of precise with uh, I S E. So uh, that's a better way to put we've it. We've made a play on words here, but I think it's a great play, and uh, you know, it really, uh, you know, speaks to what this technology is and where we are. That is in the ophthalmology field. That's where we want to be. So it's a great name to have. I think it is a very. I don't know if you agree. No, I do. I wish I could read better, but uh, but. Uh, <laughs> But it's a it is a it's a very uh, it's a very clever name and uh, it's a clever technology and I'm glad you took some time to to tell us about it. And I look forward to uh, to keeping an eye, no pun intended, on the story going forward. Well, thank you very much for taking the time and thank you for you being interested in our technology. It's uh, it's nice that people like you come because it sort of validates uh, this work. And as one of my mentors once said, you know, when you get into a startup company like this, there are a few highs and lots of lows and. When you come along and you ask us to participate, it's, it becomes a high, and that's always positive and nice to have. Excellent. Well, we're glad we could give you the little boost, and, uh, and again, I can't wait to see where the story ends. Well, we'll, uh, we'll be there, and you're welcome to come back. Thank you, Mark. Thanks a lot. And that's a wrap. Mark DeSemet, it was a pleasure to meet you in uh, Copenhagen, and uh, it was wonderful to have you on the podcast. Very interested in what Precise will be able to do in the coming years, and uh, I hope you uh, will uh, come back again when you've raised the capital necessary to uh, to bring this uh, really neat technology to the U.S. So, best of luck to uh, Precise. Thank you to our podcast listeners for joining us today, and uh, tune in next week for another tale of innovation on the MedTech Talk podcast.